We'll turn to, first of all, the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 17, and afterwards we'll read from the New Testament, Acts chapter 16. So first, Genesis 17, verses 1 to 14. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, But your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Turn now to Acts chapter 16. And here we'll read the verses 6 to 34. Getting at verse 6 of Acts 16, says, And they, that is Paul and those with him, went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, 
we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, and she was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be, a faith, to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having been, become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows on them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds or chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. So far, our reading from God's word. Dear congregation of Jesus Christ, if I were to ask you to, uh, to give an example of a sign or some kinds of signs, what comes to, to mind? What would be some examples of signs that you're familiar with? You could think of maybe a stop sign 
or uh, an arrow sign or or a no entry sign. Those are types of signs that tell us where we can go and where we shouldn't go. Or maybe think of signs that tell you where you are, like street names, street name signs, or or city name signs. Well, what are some other kinds of signs? How about signals, like hand motions? If I motion with my hand toward myself, it's a sign or a signal that I want you to come closer, isn't it? A signal is another kind of sign. Another kind of sign is a a symptom. Like if you're coughing and you have a sore throat and a runny nose, it's probably a sign that you're sick, isn't it? Well, we could go on naming all kinds of different signs that we can think of, but we want to focus this afternoon on the sign of baptism. Baptism, Christian baptism with water, it functions as a sign of the Christian gospel. And we want to see this afternoon how this is so in light, especially of what the Bible says about circumcision in the Old Testament. In our last sermon, the last time that I preached here in Sardis, in connection with Lord's Day 26, we already saw one way that baptism is a sign, namely as a picture of the washing from sin that we all need from Jesus Christ as God's gift of grace. So a sign serving as a picture. Well, this afternoon, in connection with Lord's Day 27, we'll consider two further ways in which baptism functions as a sign of the gospel under the new covenant, much like circumcision did under the old covenant. And so I preach God's word to you under this theme that baptism is a sign and seal of the gospel. First, to seal God's promise to us, and secondly, to signal or mark God's claim on us. So first, baptism is a sign of the gospel to seal God's promise to us. His promise of the forgiveness of sins and new life through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, in our last sermon, we considered the way in which this promise of the gospel is pictured in Christian baptism by the outward washing with water. While this promise is fulfilled in the believer by the inward washing with Christ's blood and spirit through faith. That's one way in which baptism is a sign of the gospel as a visible picture of the invisible spiritual gifts that that, that God promises to believers in the gospel. A visible picture of the invisible spiritual gifts that God promises to believers. But there's another way that baptism functions as a sign of the gospel. And this goes above and beyond its function as a picture or a visual representation goes beyond that and it is a seal, God's seal or pledge by which he guarantees the truth and reliability of his gospel promise so that believers may be all the more assured of their salvation in Christ. And this second function of the sign of baptism, as we'll see, is a seal of the promise of the gospel. This is rooted in a pattern that's found in the Old Testament. 
There in the Old Testament, God made promises. Repeatedly, he made promises and covenants with his people. And then he added signs to those promises and to those covenants. Well, the first example we'll consider this afternoon is the covenant that God made with Noah and his family, or Noah and the creation, after the flood. So God promised that he would never again destroy the whole world with a flood. That was his promise. But not only did he make a promise, he also committed himself to that promise with a covenant or an oath. God made a covenant with Noah. But not only that, on top of that covenant, he added to that promise and covenant a sign to guarantee and to assure Noah and his descendants that he was committed to keeping this promise and covenant. And so God said to, his, to Noah and his sons, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living living creature for all future generations. This is the sign. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So God gave the rainbow as a sign of his covenant with Noah and he gave it to seal or to guarantee his commitment to be true to his promise in that covenant. The purpose of the sign was to comfort and to reassure Noah and his descendants, who just witnessed the whole world wiped out, to reassure them and comfort them of God's mercy and patience as a visual reminder of his promise and covenant. So when Noah and his descendants, they saw a rainbow in the sky, then it was meant to remind them of God's promise and covenant so that they could be comforted and built up in their faith, in God's faithfulness to his word and in his mercy towards his rebellious creatures. Well, we see the same pattern in God's covenant with Abraham. First, God delivers Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans, and he makes special promises to him. You can read about that in Genesis 12. God promises to bless Abraham with a multitude of descendants, to provide these descendants with a land of their own, and to cause them to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Then, a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 15, Having made these promises to Abram, God then committed himself to keep these promises by making a covenant with Abraham, sealing his promises with an oath. That's when God, in the form of a a smoking fire pot, uh, passed through the broken pieces of the animals in Genesis 15. That's when he made that covenant. And then... As if that wasn't enough, God added to this covenant in Genesis 17, which we read from, a sign, a covenant sign in order to further guarantee and to further assure Abram and his descendants that he was indeed committed to keeping the promises that his covenant with them already guaranteed. 
God said to Abram, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And so on. And then the sign, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. You can recognize this language, this language of the, a sign of the covenant comes up in the catechism in the Lord's Day uh, 27 where it says that baptism, a sign of the covenant, must by baptism, a sign of the covenant Uh, the children of believers must be incorporated into the church. And so in in God's covenant with Abram, as he did with the rainbow in his covenant with Noah, so now God gives circumcision as a sign of the covenant to seal or guarantee his commitment to be true to his promises in this covenant. The purpose of the sign was to comfort and reassure Abram and his descendants with God's promises to bless them. It was to be a visible reminder of his covenant with them. When Abram and his descendants then witnessed either their own circumcision, or that of their husband, or their infant children, whichever the case might be, It was meant to remind them of God's covenant with them and his promises to them so that they might be comforted and built up in their faith in God's faithfulness to his word. This was God's purpose in giving circumcision as a sign of his covenant. There's one more example of this pattern of covenant signs in the Old Testament and that would be uh, the sign of the Sabbath, the seventh day Sabbath that God gave to his people Israel. And for the sake of time and the sake of the heat, I'll just leave that to you. You can look that up in Exodus chapter 31, but it's the same pattern. God gives a promise. He's going to set Israel apart as a holy people. And then he makes his covenant with them at Sinai. And then he adds to that covenant the sign of the seventh day Sabbath, signifying his covenant. Exodus 31. Well, now that we've seen how the rainbow and circumcision, as well as the Sabbath, how they function as covenant signs before the coming of Christ, then we're now ready to see how Christian baptism functions now that Christ has come as a sign of the gospel. The New Testament declares that Jesus Christ has come and fulfilled all of God's Old Testament promises and covenants, and that by his death on the cross and the outpouring of his Spirit at Pentecost, Christ has instituted a new covenant between God and his people, a covenant of salvation by grace for all who believe, Jew and Gentile. And in this new covenant of the gospel, the promise that is sealed by the covenant is forgiveness of sins by Christ's blood and new life by his spirit for everyone who believes in him. And God has also added to this new covenant a sign in order to further guarantee and assure his people that he is indeed committed to keeping his gospel promise in this new covenant. After his death and resurrection and before his ascension and the outpouring of his spirit, Jesus, as mediator of the new covenant, 
He instituted the sign of Christian baptism with water to accompany the preaching of the gospel. He said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Christ has given baptism to his church as a sign of the new covenant of the gospel. To seal or to guarantee his commitment to be true to his gospel promise. So when you and I then receive, or when we witness Christian baptism, its God-given purpose is to point us to God's new covenant and gospel promise to us in Christ, so that we may be comforted and built up in our faith, in God's faithfulness to his word. This is the way that God dealt with his people before Christ came, giving covenant signs to reassure them of his promises to them. And so too, this is how God deals with his people now that Christ has come. He gives us baptism as a new covenant sign in order to reassure us of his gospel promise that he will indeed graciously grant the forgiveness of sins and new life through Christ's blood and spirit to everyone who believes in him. When we then witness Christian baptism, or when we also reflect on the fact that we have been baptized, then may we be reminded of the gospel and assured of its promise for our comfort and for the strengthening of our faith. Let's make this promise our own, trusting that also to me personally, God grants the forgiveness of all my sins and the renewal of my heart by His blood and Spirit as surely as I personally have been baptized with water as a sign and seal of the gospel. Dear believer, God has given you the sign and seal of Christian baptism because He wants to assure you to give you certainty that His gospel promises are real, that they're reliable, that He's committed to keeping them. So trust Him. Hold on to His reliable word. And if you're not a believer, these same promises are held out to you too in the gospel, together with a call to turn from your sin and unbelief and to trust in and worship Christ. And if you've been baptized and you're not a believer, this call comes to you all the more personally since God has put his mark on you. This brings us to the second point, how Christian baptism is a sign and seal of the gospel to signal God's claim on us. Baptism functions not only as a picture and guarantee of the gospel's promise to us, but also as an indication of the gospel's obligation upon us. That is to say, baptism serves as a visible sign or signal that God claims us as his own. He says, you belong to me. He, as it were, puts his tag on our ear or on our forehead. And he thereby calls us to respond to his gospel promise in faith. 
And we find precedent for this function of baptism in the Old Testament in the way that God explained the role of circumcision as the sign of his covenant with Abraham. So just like we did in the first point, first looked at the Old Testament background and then came to the New Testament and today, so we'll do in this second point. In addition to serving as a picture and guarantee of God's promises to Abram and his descendants, circumcision also served as a mark of God's claim on them as his people, a visible mark by which he set them apart from other nations and religions to be a people for his own possession and worship. In other words, circumcision was to serve as a mark of consecration to the Lord. It signaled the people's corporate status as a holy people, a people set apart and devoted to the Lord. And it's this message of circumcision that finds expression in God's command that Abram and his descendants should circumcise every male within the jurisdiction of their households. God said to Abram, Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who's not of your offspring, both shall surely be circumcised. And so shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. One of the things that God was communicating by instituting this sign of circumcision for every male of the household was this. You belong to me. Because as a member of this household, I have set you apart together with the head of this household. I've set you apart to worship and serve me as your God. And to receive in faith the promises of my covenant. My covenant is for you too. And I entitle you to its benefits by grace if you receive it in faith. The circumcision of Abram and his household communicated this promise and claim of God to all who received the sign. Now, was it only to adults and older children that God gave this sign of his covenant? No, but also to infants. God commanded Abraham, chapter 17, verse 12, He who is eight days old shall be circumcised. God placed his claim on the entire household and so sealed the promises of his covenant to infants as well as adults, that they too might be assured of God's promises and their own obligation to embrace these promises by faith and to acknowledge God's claim on them as they grow up, as part of God's set-apart people. This is what God communicated to his people when he first instituted this sign in Genesis 17. But God wasn't done with them. There was something he still needed to teach them. And so as God continued to unfold and reveal his plan of salvation, his plan wasn't just to bring them into a nation. No, his plan ultimately was salvation through Jesus Christ. And as he reveals that plan, he has to teach his people that outward physical circumcision is a sign of God's external call and claim upon them. But it didn't have a one-to-one correspondence with spiritual salvation. That comes through an inward spiritual circumcision of the heart. As we've seen, circumcision was a mark of consecration. 
It signaled that someone belonged to God's set-apart holy people, outwardly. At the same time, outward circumcision was not able to accomplish inward consecration or inward and spiritual holiness of heart. This inward consecration of the heart is what God ultimately desires of his people. And so he says, for example, in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, Circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Jeremiah 4, verse 4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. And he's not talking about the removal of the foreskin of the flesh, but he goes on to say, Remove the foreskins of your hearts, lest my wrath go forth like fire because of the evil of your deeds. But mercifully, God didn't only require this. He also promised to accomplish this heart circumcision himself. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, it says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Through faith in Christ, this promise is fulfilled in our hearts, also today. As Colossians 2, verse 11 says, In Christ you, and he's speaking to the believers in the church of Colossae, in Christ you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In other words, a spiritual circumcision. What kind of circumcision? By the circumcision of Christ. This ultimately is what the Old Testament sign of circumcision pointed forward to. The, sign, the reality to which that sign pointed is the circumcision of Christ by which our hearts are inwardly and spiritually consecrated to the Lord by regeneration and renewal, by the washing of Christ's blood and spirit. And so Christ accomplishes and provides the circumcision or consecration of the heart which God required and promised to his old, required of and promised to his, old, his people in the Old Testament. Yet in the same way, Christ fulfills the significance of baptism as a sign of consecration. Baptism too, as we saw in our last sermon, is an outward sign that points to the washing of Christ by which our hearts are inwardly cleansed and consecrated to the Lord, that is, by regeneration and renewal. Baptism in the New Covenant and circumcision in the Old Covenant are both signs and seals of the same gospel of Jesus Christ, the one pointing forward in time, the other pointing backward, as it were, to the person and work of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Well, now that we've seen how baptism signifies the same spiritual realities as circumcision, it should be evident how baptism also serves in the New Covenant age as circumcision did in the Old. Namely, as an outward and visible mark of God's claim upon the entire households of believers, including infant children. Indeed, we find when we turn to the New Testament, in the book of Acts, as we read from Acts 16, 
that as the apostles carried out the great commission to make disciples of all nations, they continued the pattern that God established with circumcision. And they baptized not only individual believers, but also their entire households. Did this mean that the entire household was made up of true believers who were spiritually saved or baptized in heart, if you will? It means that no more than outward circumcision in the Old Covenant meant that every Israelite was circumcised in heart. That simply wasn't the point of circumcision. Wasn't the point of circumcision to say, you are saved. No, the point of circumcision ultimately was, Jesus saves. And so neither is baptism, the point of baptism, you are saved. The point is that Jesus saved, believe in him. And you belong to him, you ought to believe in him. So if the point of baptism isn't to tell you that you are saved, what is it? Well, what I've been trying to show you from God's word in this sermon and in my previous sermon is this. Christian baptism is first of all a picture of the washing we all need to point our faith to Jesus Christ and the washing with his blood and spirit that he promises to give us when we believe in him. Not automatically, but in the way of faith and repentance. God gave us baptism to picture what he promises to us in the gospel. And then second, as I tried to show in the first point of this sermon, God also gave baptism to seal the truth and reliability of his promise and his commitment to carry through on his promise so that we may confidently make this promise our own by faith and so be assured and built up in our faith. And finally, as I've tried to show in the second part of this sermon, God also gave us baptism to signal his claim on us as part of the people that he has visibly set apart from the world and specially calls to himself. As a signal of God's claim on us, baptism calls and obliges us to respond to God's gospel promise in faith. And then in dependence on Christ for his Holy Spirit to consecrate our hearts to the Lord more and more. And so, brothers and sisters, let each one of us who have received God's sign and seal of baptism make use of this sign in accordance with God's own design in giving it to us. Let's fix our faith on the gospel that our baptism is is meant to picture and seal to us. And let's respond in faith and love to God's claim on our hearts and lives that our baptism signals. Dear believers, when we through weakness fall into sins, we should not despair of God's mercy nor continue in sin. For baptism is a seal and trustworthy testimony that we have an eternal covenant with God that he has promised us the washing away of our sins through Christ's blood and the renewal of our hearts by his spirit through faith. So hold on to this gospel promise by faith and use your baptism, as it were, as a hand grip 
to hold on to that promise, to get hold of it. It's something visible. That's on purpose so that it makes it easier, as it were, for us. And then for you who may have been baptized but who have not yet responded in faith and love to God's claim on you, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for God to give you a sign that His promise is really for you too? He's already given you a sign in the sign and seal of baptism. A sign and seal that the promise of the gospel is for you. And a sign that God is calling you personally to turn from your sin and unbelief and start trusting and worshiping Jesus. So won't you do so today before it's too late? Come to Jesus Christ, whoever you are and whatever you've done. Come to Him by faith today and He will certainly wash away your sins and make you new as surely as water washes away dirt from the body. Your baptism is God's guarantee of this gospel promise for everyone who believes. Amen.